0: Hey, before we get started, we wanted to ask you, our listeners, for your feedback for our upcoming Season 3 Retrospective episode. We're asking for submissions, and you can write in or record a short audio blurb telling us about your favorite moment in the third season of Northern Exposure. We'll give you a shout-out or play a recording on air when we discuss Season 3 as a whole. Send your submissions to the email address, Podcast at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening to the show and writing in. And now... Back to your regular broadcast.
1: Do I look like me to you? Yeah, more or less. Well, I may look like me but somebody or something is inhabiting my body. What are you talking about? I'm talking about not being me. I, I don't have the same thoughts, the, the, the same feelings, my likes and dislikes. I, I, I mean, I never worried before. I worry about everything now. What do you mean, about what? Everything. What, you feel nauseous? Yeah, nauseous sometimes. I is there a fever, headache? No, it's it's like more of a of a, a lightheadedness, congested. No, no, I'm I'm like, it's like I'm happy.
0: Hi, hello, welcome to the Northern Overexposure Podcast, Quarantine 2020 Edition. That's right. Yeah, my name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host Lee.
2: That's me. My name is Lee, and we're talking about Northern Exposure uh, while we're in quarantine. Of course, we're doing this through video chat. So I can see you, Charles, but uh, we're not in the same room. More than six feet away, I would say.
0: Yes, we are more than six feet. We are doing our due diligence for civilization. And I got to say, in some ways, I kind of feel like Joel. Yeah. I mean, I guess
2: the idea of uh, being away from the big city that Joel is, he feels very isolated, especially in the last episode we covered, uh, Lost and Found. That episode's kind of all about isolation. You know, that feeling. Um, yeah. How, how else is this similar?
0: Well, like we're away from all the people that we want to be in, but like we're in a strange situation where everyone is experiencing this at the same time, but no one's experience is the same. So all throughout the entire world, people are like cooped up inside their houses and what goes on within them though, is like infinite possibilities. Like anything could be happening.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great opportunity for a lot of different, uh, stories, you know, like, uh, I hope there's some good content that comes out of this, uh, this experience. I kind of feel like I had the thought last night that, uh, my apartment that I'm in, uh, sort of feels like a ship or like a spaceship or something. Cause it's like the outside is toxic. Like I, I can't, you know, if I jump out, I'm going to drown or I'm going to suffocate. But, uh, no, I mean, I, I, do try to get outside in my backyard and stuff, but um, haven't really done too many excursions.
0: Yeah, me too. I definitely feel like my state of mind has changed in that I'm way more paranoid that like anytime I go outside or I'm near anything, I have a chance for contamination right there. But the really neat thing that I've observed is that nature kind of goes on by itself. So when I open my door every few days... Like my front lawn is just growing and just, uh, you got cut that grass over. <laughs> I have someone, someone else that does yeah, it for me. Say, okay. I, I live in a condominium complex that someone does it for me, but yeah, yeah, it's I get like, what you're it saying. just keeps going on right there. Yeah, life goes on, indeed, it does. And just like it goes on, so comes another episode. Of Northern Exposure.
2: Yeah, I I will say the good thing about, you know, Northern Exposure is it it really passes the time in quarantine. You know, I've definitely, I don't know, the days seem to go by really fast. I don't know if it's the same for you, Charles.
0: Yeah, I feel that too. I feel like... It's nighttime suddenly. And once you get into there, you just put on your PJs that you're already in. So <laughs> yeah. You didn't have to change. Already in your and fl- then you, yeah, you just start watching like more television series. And by the time, like time moves rapidly when you're watching series, that you just go to sleep. You don't mind the clock because you don't have anything else to do the next day. And then that's it. Like it just starts anew because you have no further goal that you're looking forward to. Like you don't have to go to work. Uh, you're literally being told by, <laughs> well, at least for us, we're being told by our government and our state that you need to remain in place. Yeah. So this is it for the next few weeks. It's
2: crazy. Um, well, I will say watching this episode was one of those experiences, you know, I feel like for this podcast, I have to really focus when I'm watching the episode and kind of um, kind of scrutinize and and watch very closely and take take lots of notes I did take a lot of notes for this episode, but I'll say this is not one of my favorite episodes of the third season, but still I felt so warmed and, uh, I don't know, I just felt so comfortable in this show. Uh, I don't think it's one of the best ones even to um, be like an example of the show at large. I know you you were saying last episode was a great Northern Exposure-ish episode, Um, but still something about the characters, uh, my fondness for them, just their familiarness, I guess, it just made it for a very comfortable watch and found myself enjoying it more than, than I guess, averages for this, uh, when I'm preparing for this podcast.
0: Yeah, I have to say that my overall impression of this episode is not overtly positive. Like, I don't think it's a very good episode in terms of um, season three, yeah. which have had some knockout episodes, in my opinion. This one, I feel like, is kind of a filler episode. Perhaps we're in
2: like a slump. Yeah, I wonder how much of this like programming of, you know, the selection of which episodes fall in which order was like determined at the beginning of the season or if these episodes are being written as the show was being shot, you know, which is maybe more likely. I don't know, but uh, I wonder if the show sort of, at least for us, we're saying this is a slump. I wonder if it fell into this, you know, slump area. Uh, organically, or if this was uh, when the showrunners said, okay, let's put this script here.
0: Oh, I get what you're meaning. Yeah, this episode could definitely fall anywhere in season three uh, that it wanted to. Okay, so we're having three main plot points from what I'm able to discern. So we have a missing baby that Joel just stumbles upon. We have Adam coming back into the picture and him dealing with his wife Eve's pregnancy. And we have Shelly and Tammy's mother sister relationship.
2: Right, that's correct. Uh, and I feel like, you know, the title of the episode uh, this is, once again, this is uh, the TV show Northern Exposure. We analyze, uh, overanalyze the show. And also at the end of the episode, we try to bring on someone who has never watched it before, get their outsider opinion. Um, that's, that's our whole spiel, that's, the, uh, that's our pitch. And now into the episode, season three, episode 18 My Mother, My Sister. Uh, what was I getting at? Yeah, I think the title of the episode uh, is is really laser-beamed onto the the Shelly-Tammy, like Shelly and her mom storyline. But I wonder, what is the primary plot of this episode? Would it be the missing baby? It's hard to say. Yeah, I agree.
0: It, it's really hard to say. Uh, based on just the title of it, you would presume it's Shelly and Tammy's relationship. That would be the main focal point. I have to say that that's probably my least liked or it's it's definitely not my favorite part of the episode even though that is the main part
2: yeah i feel like it's maybe the weaker part um i think there's a lot there's a lot going on there that i think is just kind of um scratching the surface and not really going too deep uh i feel i feel that about a lot of the plot lines in this episode um and that's not necessarily a bad thing i like that the questions are are um are scratched at but not answered necessarily sometimes um, we'll get into specifics later. I realize I'm talking very broadly, but I also wanted to point out the deleted scenes for this episode. There's a lot more going on with the, uh, mystery baby, you know, that's not, uh, that, that never made it to broadcast. And we can talk about that, I guess, towards the end of the episode, or, or if we find that it, it fills into one of our plot lines. But yeah, just concerning what is the primary plot. Maybe there was not supposed to be a primary plot, even in like the shooting script, you know, maybe it was sort of uh, equally, Distributed between these plot lines. Well, which one should we start with?
0: Well, I guess we should go for the very first one that's introduced, the missing baby.
2: Yeah, so Joel uh comes into his office. He sees Marilyn with a baby. He's you know, he's very fond of it. He's he says it's like very cute. He does the coochie coochie coo thing. But it turns out that the baby just showed up in what was that, like a car seat? No name. No mom. There's a bag with... It looks like it's got some baby bottles in it. Maybe there's some diapers in there. And the baby is wearing some overalls with uh, the letter G on them. But that's about it.
0: Yeah, she's wearing just a letter G because she's a gangster.
2: (laughs) I'm surprised. (laughs) That never came up in the episode, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. So we have this missing baby right here that Joel is, I guess... He, he he lost, like he got the short straw. He is now playing finders, keepers, because now he's primarily in charge of taking yeah, care the of care-taker. his child. <laughs> it's true.
2: Yeah. And we'll see, like, <laughs> throughout the episode. I don't, I can't remember if we see it or we're definitely led to believe that other people are taking care of the baby as well. Like, we get a scene with Adam. Uh, preparing some food for the baby. And just from context clues in the dialogue, it sounds like people are taking turns watching uh, over the baby throughout the episode. Oh, of course, Marilyn is is watching the baby too on screen. Um, there are uh, deleted scenes with Maggie. I don't think she's on the, the show like in the broadcast of the episode, but there are like two deleted scenes with Maggie uh, concerning the baby. There's a scene with Holling concerning the baby. So, you know, A lot of people are looking after this child but the burden does seem to fall on uh dr fleshman in the beginning and um i think right after the theme song we get a scene with joel and uh the mystery baby and ed in joel's office and i think it's pretty funny joel says
1: yeah i wonder what kind of person would abandon a baby like this oh my parents oh right yeah sorry yeah
2: and so we get a little bit of that backstory. We're reminded that Ed doesn't know his parents, that he was uh, adopted by the tribe.
1: Yeah,
0: but Joel tries to defend it by saying that the tribe could take care of him. Like it takes a village to raise a baby. Mm-hmm. That was happening to Ed essentially. In Joel's case, he was talking about all the horrific stuff that could happen yeah, what does he, to a baby.
2: What does he say? He says like, according to the the news... People burn babies with cigarettes, toss them in dumpsters, and flush them down toilets. How do you flush
0: a baby down a toilet? I don't know. I don't want to think about it too much. (laughs) I
2: couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't tell if this was just like poking fun at like hyperbolic, uh, sort of like shocking news, you know, or if this. I don't. uh, Yeah. What What is that supposed to even mean? Well, I think
0: that Joel has a little bit of a point uh, in that. Hear me out here. When the show was being filmed and in Joel's mindset, he used to live in New York in 1990 or like a little bit in the 80s. We would presume that he did his residency in Columbia. Yeah. New York in 1990 was pretty dang dangerous. Lots lots more uh, crime, right? Or yeah. Crime was so much more problem, crime. It was, yeah, it was insane. So New York's murder rate actually peaked in 1990, but by the end of the 90s, the violent crime rate actually dropped by 56%. Mm. And it's actually really interesting about it because the attributing theory to it is that it started with Mayor Rudy Giuliani who had this policy called the Broken Window Policy, which is where you enforce a small disorder so that... Larger ones were prevented. So let's say that somebody, I don't know, like spray painted onto a car, you would arrest that person and make sure that he wouldn't go on to spiral into larger crimes, Uh, hence a broken window. But a lot of people have come out and said, like, that's not necessarily true like co-authors Hope Komen and Nancy Moken found that it was a drop in unemployment and an increase in police force that contributed to the drop in crime overall not because of the broken window theory but it's probably an amalgamation of all the factors coming in that made New York much more safer so Joe was a little bit in the right to be worried about or it just, just makes finding sense finding a random baby just from like the yeah. time
2: like you know his perspective in the in the early 90s coming from you know, living in New York in the 80s.
0: Yeah. We think of New York as like, I don't know, I guess like a little bit more safer. Like we're looking at it with the eyes where we're even thinking that like Brooklyn is extremely safe. But uh, I know that if you listen to like rap songs in the 80s, you're like, I'm never going there. <laughs> like, it's like I'm never going to set foot in that place.
2: Well, yeah, that seems to be Joel's stance throughout the episode is he's... um he's very critical of this uh, person, you know, who left this baby because, you know, he's afraid of the dangers and he can't believe that uh, the mother would abandon her child. Um, And that, I feel like that sort of mindset is challenged a lot in the episode. Uh, And we'll talk about it more in in certain scenes. Um, It's even challenged... In the uh, deleted scenes with uh, with Maggie and Hauling, I feel like that is sort of Joel's plot line. Uh, we we would say the the baby you know has its own plot line. Joel's little niche of that is is um, his sort of judgment of the mother who left her child unattended, and uh, and sort of the arguments against that. I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, the silver lining to finding this baby though is that. Chris seems to have a lot of fun musing about the nature of names.
2: Yeah, Chris is like, you know, what is that website? Um, Behindthename.com? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. I use that website a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And Chris is like, you know, this is before, I guess, I wonder when that uh, website launched. But this is definitely before people were uh, surfing the web um, commonly. So (laughs) he's kind of just... He seems to have this whole catalog of on every single name that is uh, suggested. He, uh, he seems to know like, its origins, its etymology. But what, it starts with, um, first he pull, puts out a call you know, asking for, you know, if, you, if you're missing your child, please come down and claim, uh, claim the baby. And then he starts musing a lot throughout the episode about you know, what's in a name.
0: Yeah, I find that to be really interesting in what is a name because he's posing hypotheticals as to what would happen if your name was this one. Like, could this really famous person in history uh, achieved all that he would have done if their name was, like, drastically different? Um, You know, was it fate in that you were named something in what you achieve? And I can't help but think about, like, does that apply to our lives like, what if your name wasn't Lee and my name wasn't Charles? Will we be drastically different individuals?
2: Yeah, it seems like Chris is kind of going back and forth uh, throughout these different sequences, and he, he can't really settle on an answer to, you know, does a name really amount to a person's achievements, or is it, you know, are they going to succeed even without that
0: name? You know, I don't believe that he actually does give anything concrete on that. He kind of just keeps going down the rabbit hole and examining what the nature of names are yeah. uh, and not leading us to one answer or another. It's more of, I guess, just a pontification on the nature of it.
2: We're really quickly jumping ahead with Chris. Towards the end of the episode, he uh, we find out on air, on K-Bear, Chris tells us the baby's name was Barbara Jean and that the G on her shirt was just a hand-me-down from her brother George. But again, he's got the behind-the-name etymology. He says Barbara, the name Barbara, comes from the Greek meaning stranger. But if you go to behindthename.com, it says uh, foreign. But, you know, either way, I think it's an adequate translation.
0: Yeah, it's not that too far of a stretch. I like that they didn't give the name until the very end because I think that naming something gives it permanence. So had they named the baby before the mother had come to claim her, it would have, like, signified in some way that this baby now belongs to Sicily. Yeah. Like, it has, it has formed its mark onto this town. But they never name it. They never give it any indication other than the G on its chest. But they all take care of it.
2: Yeah. They don't get that name in, in time. Cause the, the baby is collected before they can name it. But I think, I don't know if we were unclear about it, but Chris does put a call out asking for name suggestions. So they get a lot of different suggestions and that's when Chris is using his like sort of encyclopedia, uh, behind the name knowledge, sort of like he reads a name on air and then says it's meaning, you know? Yeah. But he does muse in the same scene at the end, uh, sort of what you're getting at. You know, the the by naming something, you make it permanent. Uh, he says, what's the need to name but the need to claim? To call a thing, conjure it, make it your own. So the idea, you know, that I like what you pointed out, that had the people of Sicily been given enough time to name the baby, it would feel more like, you know, it belonged to them. Or I'm reminded of the episode when Maggie takes in that dog and she thinks it's uh, Rick you know, mm-hmm. or maybe yeah. it was Rick, who knows. But, you know, she feels kind of betrayed when its owner does uh, end up uh, reclaiming the dog.
0: Oh, yeah. I totally forgot that that's how that plot line finishes <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. It's lots of lots of objects ending up in Sicily. That's uh, really meta.
2: Yeah, I don't know. That seems to be a, a, a common plot line. I wonder maybe it's just like to introduce a bit of outside mystery that's sort of... Um, and again, the common thing with like sitcoms or television series is everything has to return to the status quo generally at the end of the episode. So whatever was introduced is taken back, you know.
0: Right. Have you ever gone to one of those seafood buffet places where you can pick <laughs> your own fish?
2: Um, <laughs> well, you, you mean like you pick it and they cook it
0: to you? Yeah. You're like, you know, you, look, you go to the fish tank, you're like, I want that one.
2: Oh. And it's like, pluck it out. I have, but I've never done it
0: why uh, why do you bring <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot where I heard it from but someone was saying like uh, every time I go to one of those places my daughter immediately starts naming all the lobsters uh. so that I can't order lobster because <laughs> it gives it an identity at that point like you're not eating a lobster you're eating Steve there you go and Steve's got a soul yeah uh
2: <laughs> there you go and I don't know if this necessarily ties everything together with uh, Chris's name musings, but he does um, finish off with um, a little anecdote from his sixth grade years. He remembers a girl named Angel Bailey and the innumerable times that he wrote her name in the margins of his notebook. He says, what's in a name? Volumes. So yeah, I don't know. There is some sort of magic that, that we're trying to figure out, that we're talking about. Some sort of, is it to claim something is it to make it permanent to protect it you know there's power in names i guess
0: yeah we're gonna come back to the baby plot point once we discuss shelly and tamby tamby tammy tammy with an m (laughs) tamby i think that there's something there that we can connect but we haven't touched upon that plot point yet
2: should we return to joel or should we just hop into shelly and tammy
0: yeah yeah let's go into shelly and tammy
2: Okay, so Tammy enters the episode uh, when she enters the brick and Shelly is like, you know, Tammy's in town and, you know, Holling is standing beside Shelly and she's saying, you know, yeah, you remember Tammy? I told you, like, we did this, we did this and that with all of our friends. And then she's like, of course, you know, Tammy, my mom. And then, you know, obviously that's like Holling is really confused, you know, because as as we learn throughout the episode, Shelly and Tammy have a very sisterly sort of relationship. It's very unlike what you might see traditionally represented as like a a mother and daughter. And and people often confuse, uh, as we'll see, Shelly and Tammy as sisters. And something that I thought was kind of unclear, you you watched the episode today, so is it explicitly stated that the illusion is that Shelly is supposed to be tammy's older sister like is that what kenny thinks
0: no i think that okay i I see where your confusion comes in in the way it's done it's supposed to be that tammy is the older sister but shelly who is actually the daughter feels like she is the older sister because she has to take care that makes sense of tammy yeah it's kind of confusing right there there's a little bit it's a
2: little unclear, and I will say the the deleted scenes actually spell it out for you, like very clear. So if they were in the episode, you know we wouldn't feel so confused uh, with what's being shown to us. But also, I will say with the deleted scenes taken out it still functions perfectly. Like, you have enough information. You're not really that confused. I think I'm just trying to overanalyze it too much. And I can't remember what was uh, in the actual episode. I do remember being shocked whenever Shelly says older sister, like, talking about herself. Because, like, no, obviously Tammy would be the older sister. But maybe more of a metaphorically or figuratively older
0: sister. Exactly. I I felt like they should have just written... Mother, so like the parallel was shown a lot more clear. This one's like a hat on a hat, like it went like way too many levels. I I had to think about that for a split second, too.
2: Yeah, so that's kind of the mother, sister, my mother, my sister uh, idea. I think uh, in the last episode, you had predicted that someone's mom. Or someone's sister would actually be their mom or Yeah,
0: I was right <laughs> on the money pretty much.
2: Yeah, that's true. A lot of your predictions are actually pretty close, I think. I'd have to go back and see. I mean, obviously probably more times than not, you you, you aren't predicting it a hundred percent, but uh I don't know. A lot of the titles are pretty giveaway.
0: Yeah, I think I just mine for classic sitcom scenarios. Because I knew this yeah. was filmed in 1990, well, you know, 1990 to 1993, around this time. So I was like, all right, like, what, what would they have done? What type of zany television series things would they have tried to do? Yeah,
2: this does kind of feel like, uh, you know, t- uh, some sort of typical sitcom. It almost feels like we've seen this happen already in the show. Like, whenever Tammy came into town, I mean, of course, I've seen this show. A lot of times, Charles, this is your first time watching the episode. But whenever Tammy entered, I was like, oh, wait, uh, we know this character, right? So she already felt kind of familiar.
0: Yeah i I had predicted that plot line from like a mile away. <laughs> like as soon as he came in, and I was like, "Oh, she's she didn't beat teen pregnancy, obviously, and she is very exuberant and very." you know youthful it's like i can guess what's gonna happen like it's gonna be like a switch between like the mother and the daughter one wants to be more responsible and then like she's probably lying about her age in <laughs> some way like that's why i don't really like this plot line that much is that too predictable i, I feel like yeah it's very predictable and i, I feel like they kind of mind it for something stronger i almost thought that the plotline involving the missing baby would have came into this not yeah. that like, the baby was hurt. well I'm not, I'm not that don't say that
2: that there would be more of a connection or something because they seem like yeah. so i mean there obviously is sort of a connection but it's there's no direct connection
0: right i thought that we were going to talk about how you rear a child like how you would take care of one like the way that uh tammy took care of shelly and the way that the town of Sicily is taking care of this baby and maybe there was some parallels, but, uh, no, those two plot lines, at least directly never intersected. Yeah.
2: I guess you could say, you know, Tammy not being, she says like a quote unquote real mom, you know, could be related to an absent mother, you know, which is literally what's happening in the first scene of the episode. There's a baby without, uh, its mother, but yeah, there is again, no direct, uh, I guess Hauling holds the baby in a a deleted scene. But um, Shelly nor Tammy, they don't appear on screen with the baby, I don't think. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's right. They don't have it. They're not involved at all. And you know what? Now that we're speaking about this aloud, uh, the third plot point does involve babies as well. Mm -hmm. But it's also on an entirely different topic right here. Like I I feel like we're very close to unlocking some deeper theme throughout this entire episode, but they just missed it by just a smidge.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I can agree that they missed it, but it's not so much that they missed it, but that they were pretty loose about it. You know, it wasn't always tied together directly, just sort of a loose theme. Whereas uh, I think maybe what we were expecting, what we're talking about now, Charles, is is really like getting everyone, um, all the storylines intertwining. Um, and, you know, who are we to say that, This episode doesn't do that. It's just not doing it in a very direct way, at least. Right. Okay. So Tammy is in town, but she's in town because she has an announcement. She's getting married. Uh, It's a very big ring. (laughs) And Tammy says it's almost real. Uh, But she's getting married to a a man named Kenny. He's in the army. He's a mechanic. And they're going to move to San Diego. And uh, Tammy wanted to come Tell Shelly about it, I suppose.
0: Yeah, she wants to spread the news about her happy engagement. And it turns out that Kenny is a little bit on the younger side. Got like a youthful baby face.
2: Yeah, sort of like, yeah, it's sort of like the flip opposite of Shelly and Holling, where, you know, Shelly uh, is attracted to this older man. Tammy is attracted to this younger man. Let's see, Kenny is characterized by, he he doesn't seem to drink alcohol in the episode. I think he drinks, he first orders, I think, a Coke Later he orders what is it like a Shirley Temple or something?
0: Yeah, something like that. Um, he's a teetotaler, from what I can tell. And I wonder if it's because he's not of the legal drinking age, which Oh
2: you know, I don't
0: I don't think that's the case, though. Because if like Wayne can drink, yeah, that's Shirley true. He can drink.
2: Exactly. Yeah. There's, in the episode six of the first season, Shelley's boyfriend, uh, flat out tells Holling his age, which is uh, it's less than twenty-one, but Holling nevertheless <laughs> like buys him a beer or serves him beer. <laughs> totally flew over my mind. I remember when you brought that up, that he's like underage. Um, yeah, it did, didn't seem like anyone in the episode cared. But no, yeah. So in this right, Kenny is perhaps a teetotaler. There's a scene when Tammy is telling Shelly about her decision to marry, um, to decide to get married to Kenny, which I was a little confused by. Let's talk about it. So she describes being on the phone with Kenny one night. And after she hung up, she thought to herself that, this is not what life is about. This is not all there is. In that scene, it was a little confusing because I couldn't tell, was she referring to her infatuation with this younger man, Kenny, or was she instead referring to uh, what I think she was referring to was like her current life in Alaska. She mentions her job at the phone company, her trailer, um, her friends, It seemed like a very important scene, but it was kind of lost on me.
0: Yeah, I agree with you too. I felt like there was some note of importance right there. It was just also lost on me. From what I'm able to infer, it was the latter of what you said. Yeah. Like, uh, this can't be all there is to life. Like, there needs to be more. And I'm going to be with this new young man and start my life anew.
2: Yeah, something about, I think you mentioned earlier, this is not your favorite plot line of the episode. Yeah, these the scenes that seem to request a big impact just don't deliver, at least for me. I, I guess this is all very subjective. Yeah, I think it was mostly confused. And again, maybe I'm just trying to overanalyze it too much because it makes sense in the end, like uh, all of the plot machinations. But anyway, uh, this episode has a lot of men ogling Tammy. You know, she may be a mom, but she's still got like the tightest buns, I think. Is what Shelley says a number of times. Tammy is dancing in the brick. I just wrote down um, this is interesting because the broadcast music should be the song "Gimme Three Steps" by Leonard Skinnerd, uh, playing on the jukebox. That's what it says on Moosechick.com. But uh, of course, we've got the DVDs, so a lot of this music is subbed out for like royalty-free or uh, just cheaper music. There is, however, um, a nice needle drop later in the episode when Paradise City comes on the jukebox and this song actually does play on the DVD. It was not subbed out for, you know, Muzak, but it's probably because Kenny references the song by its title. He says, oh, Paradise City or something. This is like one of my favorite songs or, or they they tell a story about Slash and Guns N' Roses.
0: Yeah, uh, this was lost on me a little bit. It was... Was Guns N' Roses like a relatively new band in the early 90s? Or like, did people know of who they were?
2: I think by the 90s, people would have definitely have known Guns N' Roses. Um, Let's see. I see that they started in 1985. So it would have been a good seven years, you know, before this episode aired. And of course, they probably had some early hits.
0: Okay, got it. I was making sure on that. I didn't know that was supposed to be like... They're super hip. Like they, they know like all what the youths are listening to. Or oh. That was just like a standard musical choice.
2: I feel like Northern Exposure does tend to use um, some very topical, very contemporary music for its time. Uh, but this particular song, yeah, would have come out in 87. So not not particularly fresh. I think it's funny in this scene. This is a scene where there's sort of like a double date where Holling and Shelley are sitting together and Kenny and Tammy are sitting uh, all together in a booth drinking. And Holling's not really connecting super well. Like he offers to show them some like historic sinkhole or something. Uh, obviously he finds it very interesting, but it's not really connecting with the group. And that's when Paradise City comes on and Tammy tells a story of how she met Slash before Guns N' Roses became popular. And Just the whole time, there must be like 12 times when Holling says, Slash? Like he keeps, he just can't believe this guy's name is Slash.
0: Yeah. At first I thought he was talking about like, you actually met Slash? But then I realized, (laughs) I was like, oh, he just doesn't know. He's a big Guns Guns N' Roses
2: fan. (laughs) Holling is actually a secret. Huge Guns N' Roses fan. That would have been more interesting, I think.
0: Yeah. He's just the only elder person in the party.
2: Also in this scene is, this is when Tammy sort of lets the secret slip. Like she says something about, you know, what was it? Like waiting in line for tickets or I don't know what it was, but she says something and ends the sentence with, but Shelly was still in school. It almost reveals the secret that Tammy is Shelly's mom, uh, but she quickly covers it with something like, oh, I I finished a year before Shelly.
0: Wait, why does it matter if she is the mother or the sister to Kenny.
2: Well, Kenny doesn't know. Kenny thinks that they're sisters.
0: Yeah, but what why is she trying to hide that she's the mother in the first place? Like is there like is it like an age thing?
2: Yeah, I think it's an age thing. I think she wants to she wants to be treated as, you know, a peer, you know, that's what her relationship is with Shelley. And I think there's nothing wrong with that either. Um, but maybe part of that for Tammy is she feels like she doesn't want to lose her youth. Maybe mm, it's kind of hard to analyze because there's not really a lot given, and I don't want to like misinterpret uh, her whole psychology. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that it's insinuated that she wants to appear younger. Maybe
0: okay. No, I I, I understood that. I just in my yeah. mind, it seems like Kenny would be fine yes. either way because he loves her for who she is. From the get-go, like, it looks like that. So now that I'm revisiting it, it's like, why does it even matter in the first place? Like, she's been with him for presumably some amount of time. She must have realized that, oh, he likes me for who I am. Like, why are you hiding this piece of... Like, how do you see this playing out in the future? Look, I'll say this.
2: (laughs) I'll say this. I actually really do like Tammy and Kenny. I like both of their characters separately and together. And I agree. Yeah, I think Kenny would... This is going to go over fine. But I think even barring that, there is partly um, not just sort of the realization that Tammy is a lot older or older than she says she is, but that she kept such a big secret from him. And that's sort of like a trust issue. You know, it's like, why couldn't you trust me with this? You don't, you know, that's not a problem. We're assuming it's not a problem for Kenny. Uh, But the fact that she... um, was kind of lying to him. It's like, maybe she was lying about other things. Those are certain things that uh, could maybe potentially break a marriage. I don't know.
0: Okay, okay. No, just That's lies, a very reasonable you know? point. You're, you're right, you're right.
2: Anyway, there's there's a lot more that happens here, but I kind of want to breeze through Tammy and Shelly. Uh, they get into some sort of fight. You know, obviously, this has been festering, this sort of, um, there's a del- great deleted scene. Let me just actually play a bite from it.
1: Kenny seems like a fine young man. Yeah, he's okay. You're okay-er. The thing is, though, he thinks we're brother-in-laws. He does? When in reality, Kenny is my father-in-law. Or he would be if you and I were married. Well, we're not so tough noogies. Who cares? The thing, Shell, is that Kenny thinks your mother is your sister. Yeah, so? Well, did Tammy tell him that she was your sister? No, Holling. She didn't tell him. He just thinks it. And she never told him to unthink it. Anyway, so what if she doesn't want to admit him, the fruit of her looms?
2: Yeah, so we get that nice little uh, fruit of the loom malapropism. But no, this soundbite really, um, this little deleted scene really sort of just lays it out for us. Uh, It's very clear. We get what's going on in the storyline. And that's sort of the conflict that's happening between shelly and tammy uh it ends with tammy sort of disappearing we learn that kenny is like running all over town looking for her that tammy left her car but that no one has seen her tammy leaves a note for shelly um it all boils down to shelly finding her mom sitting alone in uh the movie theater there and they sort of hash things out
0: she goes to the movie theater to escape much like many of us do and like you said, they talk it out, they see how things are going, and you know, she kinda has this moment where she says, like, I'm gonna stop being irresponsible, I'm gonna do all of these things. I'm sorry, Shelley. I truly am. You were right. I
1: wasn't any mom. Not a real mom. Never gave you a curfew. Never got grounded like the other girls. Never made you eat spinach. I hate spinach.
0: And I believe that she even tries to end things with Kenny. Like she resolves to end things with Kenny in that movie theater, but then uh, Shelly talks him out of that.
2: Oh, yeah, you're right. I totally forgot that it almost, you know, Tammy almost called this whole thing off and was like, I'm going to be the real mom now, uh, you know, quote unquote, real mom. And Shelly's like, no, no, no. There's no need to do that. You know, don't. I, I think ultimately the scene boils down to Shelly telling her mom that, you know, you don't need to try and be something that you're not. You know, Shelly came out this way. Uh, the way that she did precisely because Tammy was a, you know, quote unquote, cool mom, you know? So um, it's like a forgive a forgiveness scene. Uh, the real, I think the problem with the scene for me is that there's just no surprise to it. You've said before in this podcast, it's like, we kind of expected this uh, this to play out as it did.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that this was one of those plot points that most audience members in 2020 would have been able to predict very well. Uh, I, again, I, I think mostly we're being unfair because, you know, we have like almost like a 20-year gap between them, like sitcoms have evolved, we've gotten the plot points differently. Maybe at the time, this was like, oh, uh, you know, this is a very neat lesson, like you know, silver linings, like be who you want to be, and like you know, not all mistakes are terrible. yeah, Things like that, but I don't think it was particularly revolutionary uh, in today's time. You know, I'm
2: just trying to think about how this all ties into like the mother's role in raising a child and trying to, I'm just trying to draw it back to the baby, the mystery baby, because, you know, there's the whole conversation um, throughout the episode uh, and especially at the end of that sort of storyline with Joel about um, when the mother does come back and pick up the baby. There's no hard and fast rules necessarily on how to be a quote-unquote real mom. You know, we see a good example of parenting Uh, even in Tammy, who feels like she wasn't there all the time, but uh, Shelly still loves her and they have a great relationship. Uh, And with this uh, mystery baby, which we can pivot to now, I guess, you know, the mother being absent, but then uh, reclaiming the baby, I hope we're not jumping ahead too much, but I kind of want to talk about the scene with Joel and Marilyn, because I feel like they sort of get into this conversation uh, that I'm thinking through.
0: Yeah, go for it.
2: So you know the scene, um, Joel has just run back to his office. He's got some new clothes for the baby. I think Marilyn is playing solitaire. And uh, the baby's not there. And she's like, no, the mother came back. And Joel is kind of struck. You know, he uh, was starting to grow really fond of this baby that, you know, at the beginning of the episode was sort of a burden to him. But anyway, Joel, again, once again, brings up the argument, the idea that the baby is returning to the person that first abandoned it, that that's a horrible, you know, outcome. I want to point out, I I think what this scene is getting at is uh, from Joel's perspective, can we forgive the mother for leaving the child? It's a tricky subject. And I think the show, it's just kind of scratching the surface here. I also don't think I'm the right person to sort of cast judgment (laughs) on like whether or not, you know, what the outcome of the baby should be, you know, should the town raise the child? I also don't think we're given enough information, but I do really like the outcome Joel is very suspicious, you know, asking, how, how do we know that that was the mother? It could have been like a kidnapper. And Marilyn responds quite simply, it was the mother. I actually really like her line reading there.
1: You just let somebody come in here and take her? How'd you know it was the mother? It, it could have been anybody. It could have been a, a baby snatcher, a lunatic. It was the mother. Yeah, even if it was the mother. What kind of mother was that? It was a baby in a, in a strange place with a bunch of strangers, three diapers and a baby bag. How do we know she's not going to do it again? She'd leave her at some truck stop gas station or a scenic overlook by the side of the road. She won't. Maybe she won't, Marilyn, but she did. She knew we'd take care of her.
2: Yeah, I can't tell if um, Marilyn's line, it was the mother, if that was overdubbed or the performance on the day, but something about it really struck me and maybe it's just the simple writing of it, you know? But I think what's great about, you know, the resolution of this scene is Marilyn is simply trying to say that nothing bad happened in the end. The baby was taken care of, and we can all be proud of ourselves and each other for stepping up to the task. You know, and and now the baby has a chance to return to its real mom. So that's like a a great outcome in the end. You know, nothing really bad uh, turned out.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting line read. I didn't get that uh, impression from it. The way it was read out to me was that the mother had a lot of faith that she was leaving her child in good hands and she was right. She left it to a town that all attended to the child's needs and wants and took care of it. And she just needed it to be taken care of for a few days and then she would return back. So Marilyn's prediction in what you're saying is like, it's all right. Like it came back, you know, it wasn't being totally abandoned. They kind of come you know, both of our readings kind of come together right there.
2: Yeah, uh, and kind of what you're getting at. You know, we can't really assume what the mother was going through, and things turned out good. So uh, I think everyone can be happy and and sort of settle on that as an ending. It's kind of it's very hard to sort of be that judge that Joel is trying to be throughout the entire episode. And, and there's the deleted scene with Maggie. Uh, it's I think it's supposed to happen earlier on in the episode, but Joel suggests. Uh, bringing the, the baby to social services and Maggie thinks it's a terrible idea. You know, it's like, <laughs> I think Joel says, you can't just take in a baby like a stray cat. But, uh, you know, uh, Maggie takes the baby for herself and Joel jokes that she's uh, kidnapping the, the child. But, um, but no, yeah, I think Maggie sees that obviously the baby is going to be uh, well taken care of in Sicily.
0: OK, so that leaves us with our final plot line, which is Adam and what he's going through. So Adam is working as the line cook again at the brick. and he's getting incredibly PO'd from the way that Dave is handling things and how he's cooking the bacon, I guess. Like he wants it to be pancetta instead of regular bacon,
2: yeah, we get we get Adam back. He's teaching Dave how to cook something uh, with pancetta. but no, Dave just has bacon. i think I think Adam says he's he's trying to make, Rolatini di vitello pomodoro. Probably butchered that pronunciation, but uh, <laughs> Google tells me that it means veal rolls in tomato sauce. So getting fancy at the brick, uh, as you do if you're Adam. But <laughs> very, very offended by uh, Dave's bacon. Adam later throws it at the wall. I just thought that was a very comical um <laughs> <laughs> Performance. He's throwing the bacon, slapping the wall.
0: Yeah. It's during his confrontation with Hauling, and he reveals to Hauling that he's actually just freaking out about his future with his baby, uh, the one that Eve is pregnant with. And I got to say, y- you know, it sucks that they had Adam in this episode and no Valerie. It seems like they're doing this on purpose. Like, I don't know if they're like, they just can't afford both actors on the set at the same time, <laughs> or what's up? like. Uh, Yeah, we. So that she's not in it
2: You know Adam is introduced in the first season As a solo character Later in the second season we find out that he has a wife But after that episode The second appearance of Adam It seems like we only get Eve or Adam We don't get them both Um, Spoiler alert we got I mean you probably know this already But we have an episode coming up called Our Wedding uh, Because that's the episode that Valerie Mahaffey won the uh, Emmy for So you know I think there's something, right. there's something to come. They'll be reunited again this season. So <laughs> we'll something see both. Look forward I, I do like kind of getting them. Uh, I do like their guest appearances. You know, I told you Eve is not my favorite supporting character, but um, I am really digging that Adam and Eve are coming back in little side side roles.
0: Yeah, So Adam is concerned about the cost of the baby that Eve has. So he has to take up this side gig at the break being the cook once again. But he's listing out various products that he has to buy. And one of them actually piques my interest, which is the Aprica Stroller.
2: Right. Yeah. He lists like a bunch of different. Are those like brand names or or what?
0: Yeah, those are brand names, actually. But just really old ones from like Sears catalogs from the 90s or something like that. But the Aprika stroller is really interesting. So the Aprika stroller comes from the Aprika Kaisa company, a company featured in Japan. And it has a shock absorber, special pads to keep the baby dry, and extra wide seats. So when this Japanese stroller was coming out, it was actually all the rage in the 80s. In fact, in 1985, the New York Times even wrote a special article about the Aprica stroller. Wow. And it cost $200, which is about $480 today for the stroller. At the time, there were Taiwanese strollers being sold at $58. So it was about $150 more expensive. But eventually the hype for these Japanese baby strollers came down uh, and the American company Graco, Graco, I'm not too sure how to pronounce it. Mm. They acquired the company in 2008 and they kind of just stopped making this uh, very luxurious baby stroller. <laughs> now, baby strollers actually cost way over $150. I, I don't know if you looked into it, but... High-end ones, such as Up a Baby Vista Stroller, they cost over nine hundred dollars. Oh my gosh! Yeah, now neither of us have children, so we didn't know the price of yeah. baby strollers at all. But I think mean, that is when insane. that day comes,
2: I'm definitely going to be working uh, as a line cook, <laughs> you know, like whatever. Know. <laughs> we need you definitely need the money. So, like you know, we can relate. Uh, what is that, sympathetically or empathetically?
0: Both, I what's, guess.
2: What's the one whenever like you don't experience it, but you uh, you can. That's uh,
0: sympathetic. Yeah,
2: I share some sympathy <laughs> there. I guess can't say I've experienced it, but
0: I find it very funny that there was a huge trend toward Japanese products in the eighties and nineties, and it even came in the form of a baby stroller.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's funny, and it's cool that it's like such a that actually was like a really um, hot topic, sort of uh, very very popular sort of pop culture reference, I guess, maybe.
0: Yeah, definitely. So Adam wants the best for his baby, which is why he's working uh, the line cook job, and he's being extra frustrated than what he is normally. And he reveals to Joel in the first soundbite that we played at the beginning of the episode how everything about his life is changing and how things that he thought were him are no longer him. Yeah,
2: like something's going on. Like he... He's going through a lot of changes. I think even the smell of, like, camembert, like, cooking and cheeses and, and foods sort of disgusts him now. And I really do love that that opening line of, of the soundbite, do I look like me to you? Such a You can tell he's, like, so lost in his mind. And the result is uh, just, I guess, a, such a foreign feeling. Happiness is such a foreign feeling to Adam that... This is what's uh, sort of throwing everything off balance.
0: That's the line that I didn't quite make heads of. So in that exchange of dialogue, we are to believe that when Adam is not feeling particularly Adam-ish, that's when he's feeling happy?
2: I don't know. Like, it sort of begs the question that, like, the vibe I'm getting from it is, like, you know, the tortured artist. You know, he's such an amazing uh, chef and cook, but he loses uh, his ability Whenever he is uh, no longer depressed, or if he's happy, it sort of saps out some of that creative uh, energy that he brings to the kitchen.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, okay.
2: That's one that that's interpretation. One reason, makes sense? I guess. No, but I, I do think it, it is open to a lot of interpretation. Like you know, that's one vibe of it, but it's kind of confusing. So finally, later in the episode, Joel is able to you know possibly diagnose what's happening to Adam. You know, Adam's self-diagnosis. He says is happiness, and uh, Joel later says it's cuvade syndrome. Cuvade syndrome. What? Cuvade
1: syndrome. It's um, sympathetic pregnancy. What? Yeah, it's not uncommon. I mean, it's not, not uncommon, but it, it happens.
2: So Joel sort of clears that up. Because, you know, in in that scene, Adam is uh, appearing to be nesting, like he's cleaning Joel's apartment, uh, or rather his cabin. I, I seem to make that distinction. <laughs> a lot in this (laughs) podcast. I always assume, I mean, it's technically his apartment because he's renting it or it's being rented uh, through Maggie, but it's just a cabin.
0: (laughs) Yeah, his place of residence.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, when he gets back to his place of residence, his uh, domicile, um, Adam is already in there and he's like cleaning stuff and Joel points out that he's nesting, cuvede being uh, a term that comes from the French word couvert, which means to hatch. I wonder if it's pronounced cuvade, but uh, but he says cuvade regardless. Yeah, so maybe that's what's going on with Adam. There's a later scene when Adam is making sort of like a puree of uh, squash and peas for the baby. Adam, as we mentioned, Adam is sort of uh, watching over the baby.
0: Yeah, he's watching over the baby, making that, uh, like a, gerber's baby knockoff thing (laughs) right there and i think it's a really interesting theory that he's experiencing what eve is experiencing and eve is always fretting about things yeah so it's not necessarily a pregnancy thing it's more that like he's mimicking eve now yeah but it's revealed you know at the end of this plot line is that he's mimicking the first trimester And then suddenly he chills out more because he's in the second trimester.
2: Oh, right. I think Joel sort of lays that out for Adam. He's like uh, explaining the different um, phases, the trimester that Eve is going through and how, you know, Adam must be matching her. So, yeah. So he ends up leaving, right?
0: Yeah. He ends up leaving because he's in a, I don't know like a much more calmer mood, able to make sense of things. It's going to go back to his wife, wherever she is. It's never actually explained where she is at the moment.
2: I think, cause didn't, I don't know if he does say it. I definitely didn't get it in my notes, but
0: I could have sworn that Eve said that Adam was off somewhere whenever she comes to visit. Yeah. <laughs> so like they're always one partner's <laughs> always, always missing, off in yeah. another location. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, do
2: they ever spend any time together? But, but yeah. Yeah, that is interesting that you know we should bring that up. You know <laughs> that uh, that they're not they seem to be so separate. But anyway, I thought it was funny that um, Adam made this great sort of as you said the Gerber like preparation for the for the baby and for Joel he just made a he just made a pop tart. <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's so funny that Joel calls him out for that. He's like, "Why did you you just made me a pop tart to eat? That's all." <laughs> the antithesis of um. You know, this culinary mastermind. I don't know why that got me so well. And I think that's about it for the Adam plotline and for our episode as a whole. But we should probably talk about the very last scene of the episode. I think it's pretty cool. Tammy is packing. She's leaving with Kenny. They're going to San Diego. And there's a really funny bit of dialogue when Shelley describes uh, the three legs that hold up Love's stool. They are sex liking his brain, then kind of accepting who he is because you're never going to change him anyway. And this is sort of the ending here that really got me comfy watching this episode. Like there's the exchange when Kenny asks Shelly and Hauling if they're going to come visit them down in uh, San Diego. And Hauling tells them that they have to come back out uh, to Alaska for the salmon run. And I got really excited for the possibility of seeing these characters again. You know, I can't recall if we do see Tammy or Kenny again, but um, this is what I was saying earlier. It's like, I, I don't really necessarily like this plotline the most of this episode, but I really did like both of these characters and would like to see more adventures with them.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that the individual characters of them have a lot of potential to where the series could lead with them. It was mostly spoiled by just this very predictable plot point. But no, I agree with you. I hope that we see them.
2: Yeah, I feel like this plot line was like the origin story uh, and that there's more opportunity now for them. But uh, sadly, I can't remember if they return. But anyway, just wanted to say, I really liked those uh, those two characters for what it's worth. And um, the episode ends with Tammy and Kenny driving off and uh, I, I think you actually even see Joel sort of running across the street. He's carrying uh, groceries. He seems to be carrying a lot of uh, groceries or bags, like in almost every scene of this episode, even at Well, the is end. he
0: returning them? I, no,
2: that, that makes sense. I was wondering if this scene was supposed to occur earlier in the script and was edited as the last scene. It definitely feels like a closing of an episode, though, so I feel like it would be written as the last scene in, in the episode. The reason I bring that up is because... The last time we see Joel, he's bringing um, grocery bags around. And I wonder if this ending scene was supposed to lead into that. I don't know. But I like your explanation. He's probably returning the, uh, it was like the baby's onesie because, you know, the baby's gone now.
0: I think that there's also a dog that just runs (laughs) past on the street. I I, I can't tell if that's like the same dog. Like, I I think it is. Wait. Like, I think there's like a selection of dogs that they have that they use they're, yeah. to have them run across the streets, and that's one of them.
2: Yeah, I'm, I am understand dogs are not the hardest animal to train, but uh, I would imagine that if they're using the same animal handler, they're probably using uh, repeat dogs, but there's a lot of them in this show. We should really uh, try to keep track of it. If you notice... Another, you know, try to keep an eye out, Charles. You're much better than me.
0: There's at least one every episode from what I'm able to uh, see. Like maybe not every single episode, but I would say 85, 90. No,
2: I think you're right. I think there's definitely one per episode. <laughs> but uh, but what I'm asking you to do is see if you can uh, recognize if there's, you know, the same dog is used over the course of a few episodes. Got it. <laughs> That's your dog watch 2020 task. <laughs> So the episode plays out. I'm not really sure what song was used for broadcast. So on our DVD, I'm not even sure what song that is. Moose Chick lists the uh, song as I Believe in Steel. It doesn't say who the artist is. Um, And I tried to figure that out just by doing some Google searches. But that's supposed to be the name of the track. That's playing as Tammy and Kenny leave for San Diego. Also in the track listing on moosechick.com, at the very end, it says Without You by Motley Crue. You'll remember this song from Sex, Lies, and Ed's Tape. That's that episode with Wayne that we were talking about because um, this Motley Crue song is supposed to be like Shelly and Wayne's dance song, like they dance together, and it's played a lot in that episode. But I was wondering, it's listed in uh, the Moose Chick entry for this episode, and I'm not sure if it appeared on this episode or if it's a misattributed but I guess we would never know because it's probably wouldn't make it onto the DVD, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, honestly, I gave the show more credit than what it it's worth. I thought the very last song was some sort of Guns N' Roses song. I just didn't recognize.
2: Yeah, whenever the whenever Paradise City came on the jukebox, I recognized it, but it sounded almost like a karaoke version or something, like a cheap MIDI version. Uh, I don't know if it was just because of the DVD I was watching, the quality... Um, Probably not, but uh, it sounded a little off. But then you hear the lyrics, you know, it's unmistakable. So this is a nice closing song, I guess. All right, so I think now is the time to toss to our guest analyst. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, every episode of this podcast, we like to introduce the show Northern Exposure to someone who hasn't seen it before and sort of get their take on the show as a standalone piece. You know, does it hold up? Does it excite you? Are you interested? What's weird out of context? What works? What doesn't? Um, Anyway, our guest this episode is uh, one of my old roommates. His name is Jared and uh, sent this um, to him to watch. And uh, hopefully he got some enjoyment in quarantine. Uh, So let's hear what Jared has to say.
1: Hello, this is Jared Hornsby calling in to share my thoughts on Episode 18, Season 3 of Northern Exposure. My mother, my sister. Uh, first off, we begin with the newborn being dropped off in the town um, in Fleischman's office. And we end there as well. And I really like that that cyclical narrative uh, device there. Uh, the, and, and much like um, the baby's kind of uh, being picked up, the, the baby has, has uh, changed hands and, and made some kind of transformation. Tammy, who, who arrives at the same time um, as this adult, ostensibly, you know, makes a, her own transformation, though I find it uh, unsatisfactory. You know, you still have Shelly telling her to buckle up as she's about to run off with the the young um, military man. So both of these processes are imperfect. Uh, but But you have the town and its people exerting their sort of corrective influence in both cases right they they care for the child collectively and they they essentially bring Tammy's own parenting inadequacies to light though again Shelley and and Tammy uh, don't really correct the the generational uh, conflict right the, the things it's kind of too late it seems um but it, it's acknowledged you know and, and and sort of dealt with and and uh through it all you get the town and their their sort of conscience which is uh channeled through the the, the radio djs uh, you know his little broadcast i really like that 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 has that had a kind of um summer camp feel, which is, I think, you know, a very integral part of, of, of why the, the town feels so intimate, right? And, and the kind of uh, a sense of community that, that is, it's appropriate to this town in Alaska, but it's also a, kind, a sort of lost ideal, right? Uh, and I, I found playing, I found that m- myself being a witness to this this sense of community and this small town uh, idealism uh, was very gratifying. That's about three minutes, Lee. I, I don't know uh, if that was what you're looking for, <laughs> but uh, I did appreciate the episode. And um, I, I'll, I'll watch more of it, certainly. It, it opened a new door for me. So thank you guys. And uh, take care now.
0: All right. So that was Jared's guest commentary on the episode. And I like that Jared picked up on the parallels between Tammy and baby G uh, as well. Like he was able to see like how the town came together and took care of her and how Tammy wasn't there for Shelly and how that parallels between the two and how we're coming into and from it. Uh, I like that he picked up on that.
2: Yeah. And, you know, something that I totally forgot about it. I didn't put in my notes, but uh, Jared points out at the end, whenever Tammy is driving away, Shelly tells her, you know, reminds her, buckle up. And, you know, that sort of represents the, uh, as Jared was saying, the idea that, you know, Tammy has gone through some change, some character growth. But in the end, uh, characters are still somewhat true to themselves. They're old versions, you know. So Shelly is still sort of looking after her mother and being maybe the older sister vibe. But I, I do like seeing that a lot. Whenever, I think we mentioned in the last episode where we see Fleischman sort of come around to be more involved and friendly with the community, uh, but he still wants to try to pretend like uh, he feels imprisoned by uh, Sicily, Alaska. You know, what I'm getting at is the idea that we see character growth, but we still see some remnants and some shards of the original character is still there. You know, It, it makes it feel a little real, I guess.
0: Yeah. Agreed. One word that he said that just stuck with me throughout his entire commentary was the summer camp feel. And I've never heard of the show described in that manner.
2: That's a good, yeah. You know, I think it fits very perfectly in this episode because, um, you know, maybe one part of summer camp is you're all in it together and, uh, Typically, there are like group activities or people are working towards some common goal. And in this episode, uh, we've got, you know, the town taking care of the mystery baby, little baby G.
0: Yeah. Also, the fact that there's somebody on the radio just broadcasting. That's true. Yeah. That was the role of Chris. (laughs) Though, I've never been to summer camp. Is that like a common thing to have someone just like, you know, speaking into the loud microphones?
2: So, I've been to a summer camp and I don't think we had one of those, but... Obviously, uh, when it's depicted in film and TV, definitely, yeah, you've, you've seen that before, like sort of the uh, morning announcements, you know, for the summer camp, and Chris is definitely channeling that that vibe. You know, we, we sometimes forget to bring it up, but the town of Sicily does have a very strong presence on, you know, the whole idea of of Northern Exposure. The town really feels like a character, at least a lot of our guests uh, seem to to find that. You know, Jared mentions Chris is sort of like the voice of Sicily, And we really get that spirit of what Sicily is when we see, you know, the baby being handed around and cared for. And, um, yeah, you know, even though this may not be one of our favorite episodes of this season, you know, you can see that Jared obviously really enjoyed it. And there, there's something about it, at least uh, about the show that has that spirit, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah, just every small townsfolk coming alive between the pages just being lit up right there. And I do have to give credit where it's due in Northern Exposure. I think they're getting to the stage where you don't have to have whole plot lines or you don't have to explain a character super well right now we as the audience members kind of understand what each character is about and what they do so you can just plug and play them throughout episodes um, we're starting to see that throughout the end of season three uh, for example like ruth ann like she drops a comment about her faith and what yeah her, or you know really her lack of faith and we don't have to delve into that yeah like we can just go right past it um, lots of little towns folks are going like that dave is kind of starting to become his own character. So all these minor characters from season 1 and season 2 are starting to come alive now, which is always the best parts of sitcoms or television series. Yeah, and and
2: just to add on to that, you know, we mentioned Ed early on. He does a little bit of exposition explaining how he was sort of adopted by the tribe. So you know these characters have already been established and they feel lived in because it's already happened and of course we all know this because we've watched it and people you know this was a popular show at the time so most anyone tuning into the show had probably seen enough northern exposure that they you know they feel established but i do think uh you're right charles that even if you had never seen an episode of this these characters feel lived in because the actors have been playing them for so long, because things have happened in the past. Even if you haven't seen it, it has been established. And so it's easy just to kind of do a little quick bit of uh, exposition and, uh, you know, someone who has never watched the show, maybe is just tuning in, can really feel that, uh, that sense of uh, familiarity with a with character, even if they're just finding out about it in this episode. So those were Jared's notes. Once again, thank you, Jared, for watching and providing your insight. And uh, yeah, I got to find some way to get you the rest of this uh, this series so you can start watching it. It seems like Jared genuinely was interested in watching the show. And unfortunately, uh, I don't know if you know this, Jared, but uh, the show has never been available for streaming. So really you can only get it on DVD or like some Australian Blu-rays or something like that. But uh, it is totally worth it. I'll try to find a way to provide you with some more episodes to watch. Anyway, Charles, we got to come back in a week. Uh, I guess still virtually, but um, we'll be figuring out the kinks of uh, this virtual system, you know, the more that we do it. But next week, what have we got to talk about? The 19th episode in season three, it's called Wake Up Call. Predictions?
0: Huh. Um. All right. I think that, it's not going to be Joel, but it's going to be one of the other characters has a realization about something in their life that they've been doing. that's actually been the improper way of doing it and it causes them to doubt their lifestyle.
2: Hmm. I think there's a lot. I mean, obviously with the title of the episode, you know, I think a lot of what you hit is going to be presented in some questions and some themes. I think you're not too far off. Uh, I will say I remember this as being one of my favorite episodes. So we'll see how it stands up oh. on a rewatch. All right, then. All right. Charles, we'll talk next week.
0: All right. See you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jared for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. And of course,